Hello and welcome back to the Literary Salon podcast. It is me, Damien Barr, bringing you another book of the week. Now, it is still summer, at least where we are, and you might be looking for a summer read. Now, I paused there because I was thinking, some people want, you know, sunshine from their summer books. This is not a sunny book. This is gothic, this is dark, and this is mysterious. And it is from an author that we love here at the Salon. It is from Essie Fox, and the book is called The Fascination. So the book is about twin sisters, Kezia and Tilly. They are identical in every way, except that Tilly has not grown an inch since she was five. The two girls are sold by their father to a man called the captain, and they then enter this kind of dazzling, terrifying, slightly fairground world of entertainment alongside other outcasts who are gawked at by the public and they crossed paths with an orphan called Theo um, and they all embark together on this frightening journey across London's very dark underbelly. So it's it's gothic, it's carnivalesque, not a word that you get to use very often, but a word that I love. It's exactly the kind of book that you would expect from Essie Fox. Essie is based in Windsor. Her debut novel, The Somnambulist, was shortlisted for the National Book Awards and featured on Channel 4's TV Book Club. That's one of the other TV book shows. Other TV book shows are available. <laughs> Anyway, uh, The Fascination is Essie's fifth novel and it's very much in keeping with her love for gothic settings, dramatic characters and twisty turning plots. So you'll absolutely love it, you'll lose yourself in it um, and it'll be one of those ones that you're racing to finish just so that you can recommend it to folks. And surprise, surprise, it is already a Sunday Times bestseller. A.J. West, whose award-winning novel we have featured on our podcast, described the book as a magical, macabre masterpiece. So, there you go. Sit back, relax, and let Essie whisk you away to Victorian England. Hello, I'm Essie Fox, and I'm delighted to be reading exclusively for the listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my new book, The Fascination. The book has two narrators, a young man called Theo Seabrook and Kezia Lovell, whose stories thread together as the novel's plot progresses. But today, I'll begin with Theo's chapter one, when, at the age of only seven, the orphan boy is being raised in the sprawling country home of his grandfather, Lord Seabrook. And in this scene, he's introduced to the macabre curiosities his grandfather collects. Grandfather snatches at his arm and drags him through the study door. The boy has never been inside because the room is always locked, though he has often stood on tiptoe with one eye pressed to the keyhole, only to see a soup of shadows. But there are smells and smells seep out. The ones that puddle round this door are wood and leather and vanilla from the pipe Grandfather smokes. Is that what stains his teeth so brown, even the tips of his moustache, and the tufts of bristled white that are sprouting from his ears? His grandfather looks like an owl and his nest is very dark, although some buttered rods of light are creeping in around the shutters closed across the big bay windows. They form a ladder on the floor, leading towards the painted globe set on a stand beside the hearth. How the boy would like to spin it, to look at all the greens and blues, the lands and oceans of the world. But to do so, he would need to navigate the tiger skin lying on the boards before it 
The tiger's head is still attached. The tiger's eyes reflect the flames blazing red in the grate. They seem alive and dangerous. Less threatening of the deer heads mounted high upon the walls. Their softer melancholy gaze falls across the rows of tables laid with trays containing beetles, butterflies, or are they moths? Of almost every size and colour he could possibly imagine. Inside glass domes of birds and fish and other animals the like of which he's never seen before. At least not when exploring in the gardens or the fields that spread for miles around the house. These specimens, the old man calls them, letting go of the boy's arm as he gruffly points them out, are macabre but beautiful. Some are embossed with silver pins that fix them down on squares of velvet. Some hang on wires, invisible, between the palest pinks of corals, pearly shells, or stems of leaves, all being artfully arranged to form the backdrops of displays that represent the distant places where these creatures had once lived, lived before they died. Did his grandfather go travelling to find and then to kill them to bring them back to Dorney Hall? Sadly, it is too easy to imagine such a thing, and while continuing to stare, the child is all but overwhelmed by a sense of loss and sorrow. This, he often thinks when he is older looking back, is the moment when he first becomes aware that in some vague and unknown future, everything that ever lived is doomed to die. Although the notion slips away with a blast of onion breath when his grandfather demands... What sort of age are you these days? I'll be damned if I can tell. Such a stumpy little imp. But I believe you must have had another birthday recently. Yes, my birthday was last week and now I'm seven years of age. The boy replies, feeling confused because birthdays are not events Grandfather likes to celebrate. But Cook and all the maids and his governess, Miss Miller, they gathered round the kitchen table. They had him standing on a chair while everyone sang, Happy birthday, happy birthday, dearest Theo. How they cheered and clapped and laughed and said that he must make a wish as he was blowing out the candles on his favourite kind of cake, the sort with strawberries and cream. Seven? Is that so? Grandfather sounds surprised. His heavy brow is concertinaed into furrows of concern. There is a pause, a mucus crackle in his throat, and then a cough. Oh, well, that's a rather special number. I must set affairs in motion. You should be off to school by now, or you'll end up a pampered fool being fussed and mollycoddled by the women in this house. Why is the number special? Theo thinks about the stories from the Bible he has heard on Sunday mornings when Miss Miller takes him to the village church and, being eager to impress this man he barely ever sees, to prove that he is not a fool, his voice is piping in excitement. God made the world in seven days. Adam and Eve, the sun and stars, and when it rained there was an ark, a great big ship filled up with every kind of animal on earth. They came in March in two by two. The past crushed up as sugared pills and swallowed down by simpletons. Another weary sigh precedes the damning interruption. You must think deeper, dig for truth. What if there were other species? What if the beasts we now imagine as being nothing more than myth may once have actually existed, may still exist today in far-off corners of the earth? Do you mean the dragons, the... What is the word? 
the boy forgets, and glancing back towards the globe, he recollects a recent lesson when Miss Miller told a story all about some giant bones being discovered by a girl not much older than himself. She'd been walking on some cliffs in quite another part of England. The place, it had a funny name, something like limes, or was it lemons? Dinosaurs, Grandfather says. Well, there are displays in London, the British Museum. Perhaps one day you'll get to see them, but for now, I'd say it's time for you to view my own collection. Your collection? Dinosaurs? This is a thrill beyond all measure. How can it be? Where could they be? But then this house is very big. So many places you could hide things in the cellars or the stables or the barns or mausoleum underneath the private chapel. No! Grandfather snaps before his lips curl in a smile through which his yellowed teeth protrude. But as it happens, I do have some unusual exhibits. Another door is opened. A door you'd never guess was there, made to look like shelves of books. A fusty smell is seeping out, and something sharp and sour. Is it vinegar or bleach? The things Cook uses when she's on a cleaning spree down in the kitchens. His grandfather is swallowed in a curdling of gloom, although his voice remains quite clear. I like the gas. There are no windows here. The darkness helps to stabilise the preservation fluids, whereas the objects that are stuffed. There is a grunt of disapproval. <laughs> Must get my butler to come in and lay more poison down. The wretched vermin in this house. Grandfather's mutterings have stopped, and now the boy can hear the rasping of a lucifer on tinder. There is a swimming green and gold and the hissing sound of gas as flames illuminate the darkness. It is the eeriest illusion, almost like being underwater. Suddenly he cannot breathe and even fears he might be drowning. Can he turn and run away, back through the hall and up the stairs? But the doorway to the hall is entirely lost from view when, for the second time that day, Grandfather reaches for his arm and almost lifts him off his feet. For pity's sake, stop whimpering. There's nothing here to be afraid of. At least, a phlegmy chuckle precedes the cryptic inference. <coughs> Not in their present forms. Like Alice falling through the glass, the boy's whole world turns upside down. Now he's on the other side of what appears to be a cupboard, little bigger than the store in which Cook keeps her jams and pickles. His head is spinning. He feels sick as he inhales metallic fumes. His eyes are drawn towards the dirty-looking leather of a glove left on a stand beside the entrance. But oh, the horror of the thing, when Grandfather picks it up and says it's not a glove at all, but a hand that has been severed from a man accused of murder who met his death upon the gallows over 300 years ago. It's called a hand of glory. Grandfather holds the ghastly thing underneath a burning jet and now the boy can clearly see the stringy tendons that protrude through the mummified grey flesh, the hoary ridging of the nails. People had them dipped in wax, threaded the fingers through with wicks, lit them up like candelabras. The hand is thrust towards him. The boy cries out and stumbles back against the wall with a thud. His shoulder is hurting, but there's no sympathy to follow, only the bark... Where's your backbone, lily-livered little urchin? My wife was just the same. Not that long before she died, she found me here. And what a scene! Ran through the house screaming blue murder. The boy would like to scream. The sweat is breaking on his brow. The flutter of his heart could almost be a frightened bird, wings beating hard against the trap of the ribs that curve around it. 
his breaths are coming much too loud, almost like thunder in his ears when, behind a wall of glass, he sees a head without a body. The marbled blue of shocked round eyes could be his own reflected back. But from this other child's brow protrudes a gnarled and curving horn, like the tusk of the rhinoceros he's looked at yesterday in Miss Miller's illustrated Animals of Africa. He turns away with a shudder, only to see a larger head. This face is covered in dark hair. The sawdust spilling through one nostril looks like a lump of crusted snot. Two dark brown eyes stare blankly out through a pair of swollen lids. A snout has lips curling black to show the darkness of the teeth poised in the moment of a snarl. Underneath, fixed to the plinth on which this horror has been mounted, is a tarnished metal plate. Silently, he mouths the syllables engraved in the brass. Can the rope. What does it mean? Feet shuffle on. His nose is pressed against another wall of glass, mouth dropping open as he wonders. Can this really be a mermaid? He thinks it is a she, but ugly like a chimpanzee, a face as wrinkled as a prune beneath a scalp entirely bald. The tail extending from the waist is the dull brown of flaking rust. Several scales have fallen off and are scattered like confetti in the base of the container. What's left is blighted by black mould, like rotting carrots left forgotten in the bottom of Cook's basket. A narrow ray of sunlight shafts through the door and draws his eye towards a jar that, till that moment, had been concealed in veils of shadow. The skin of what it holds is white and luminous, like pearls, while underneath there is a pale purple tracery of veins. The tiny hands are splayed like starfish. The shell-like ears are pixie-pointed. A rosebud mouth appears to smile, as do a pair of milky eyes that are occasionally hidden by some wisps of fine fair hair that slowly waver as they float in a cloudy amber liquid. He feels the queerest of sensations, as sweet as honey in his belly, when he notices the place where the shoulder blade should be and where... Is that a pair of wings? But if they're wings, is this a fairy? A real-life fairy in a bottle? The fascination has begun. Well, that's the end of chapter one, but just the start for Theo Seabrook, who's had an experience that will go on to haunt his future life for years to come. Thank you for listening to the first chapter of my historical gothic novel, The Fascination. What a pleasure it is to have Essie here on the podcast. Essie, thank you so much for joining us. We've wanted to have you on for ages and we're delighted that we finally got you. Now, the story is full of darkness, um, but like all darkness, it is balanced out by light. And ultimately, really, this is a book about friendship and belonging. And I suppose, in a way, the idea of logical family, which you know I'm obsessed by. That was Essie Fox reading exclusively for the Literary Salon. The Fascination is published by Independent Press Orenda Books and is available now in all good bookshops and we really do love Orenda, they make great books. It's already been selected as a Goldsboro Book of the Month with a limited run edition available to order. Now Goldsboro do these lovely um, limited runs with, you know, often with spreading or special art. 
So we're gonna share a link to that um, so you can get your special signed copy while supplies last. They might very well have gone, even as I'm sitting here saying this, but I hope they haven't, and I hope you can get your hands on one. Uh, please do share this episode with the goth in your life, or indeed your own inner goth, so that they can enjoy Essie Foxy's fantastic new novel. As always, thank you for listening, and we're going to be back again soon with more books of the week, and I don't know if you know this, but we've got a salon coming up at the Edinburgh Book Festival now. It's sold out already. It's sold out in 15 minutes, um, but we're hoping that there'll be some returns. So follow us on socials and also follow the Edinburgh International Book Festival. And if there are any returns, then I hope that we can we can see you there. Um, and we'll try and make it available online somehow as well. Um, but anyway, thanks to everybody who got tickets already. And thank you for listening to the podcast today.